Hey, everybody, this is Brad Gillis from Night Ranger, and you're checking out Focus on Metal right here. You're going to love it. Hey, Metalhead, Scott Thompson here, welcoming you back to yet another week of Focus on Metal. So, no, no, uh, no Night Ranger this week. That was just the uh, symptom of me taking the high road for once. Anyone that knows me would be uh, shocked that I took the high road. I really had the urge to play our Jack Russell ID in front of this one. But uh, again, like I said, took the high road because our guest this week is Great White's Mark Kendall. Richie sat down, had a nice long chat with Mark all about what's going on with uh, Great White now, what's going on with Mark now, what went on with Mark in the past, some throwback stuff about Great White. So basically a, uh, a Mark Kendall Great White episode. Lots of good stuff, lots of good conversations. So I say we get into it right now. Mark Kendall for Richie. Yeah. Hi, hi Mark. How are you doing? How you doing, buddy? I'm okay. So where are, you're in California? I am. Okay, I'm. Uh, I'm just outside of Boston. Oh, you're okay. You're in Boston, right on. Yeah, it's um, be cold there, huh? It's actually not too bad. It's about forty. <laughs> <laughs> right on. You sound like you're from uh, Europe or something. Where Where are you from? I'm from Waterford in Southern Ireland. Oh, you're from Ireland, right? Yes, on. Cool, I am. Huh? Uh, have you ever played in Ireland? Yes, uh, but it's been a while. When we first got a marginal record deal or whatever, we toured with Whitesnake in the UK, and we played Ireland, Scotland, you know, like Dublin, Belfast, and stuff like that. Okay, so that would have been, what, 80, 84, 85, maybe? 83. Wow. <laughs> wow. Yeah. <laughs> because, because in 84, uh, we came back the states and open for judas priest right after that nice. so that was a really early version of white snake that we toured with over there yeah that had uh different members you know okay was, uh, was uh was john sykes in the band then yeah because i what i heard was that mel gilly was in some kind of motorcycle crash or something so they called in John Sykes to kind of save the day. We did do a show, I remember. It was kind of like a one-off that even had, you know, the guitar player that wrote all the songs, um, Moody? Yeah, Mickey Moody. Mick, Mickey Moody. Mick, Mickey Moody. Yeah, I, uh, we, we jammed with him on one show. I can't remember how that happened, uh, but, but I remember he was in the band with Mel Gilly. But when they got Sykes, it was just a one guitar player band with John Lord on keyboards. Oh, nice. <laughs> yeah, it was a good band. Uh, uh, John Sykes is a, a wonderful guitar player. Did you get to hang around with John Lord much? Every night, we were staying in castles and stuff, and, uh, you know, these haunted, supposedly haunted hotel-type castles. And we sat up with John Lord night after night just, listening to deep purple stories i mean we tortured that guy to tell us you know basically his career you know because you know we were young kids and you know we we're really green and and we were i i personally was a big deep purple fan just from being a young teenager and you know it was one of my favorite bands and blackmore and everything and he just sat there and he loved to tell the stories and we loved to hear them so yeah, we hung out with John Lord a lot. Uh, he was such a nice guy, such a nice man. Yeah, what about um, Coverdale? Or, uh, was Cozy Powell, I think, was in the band as well then, wasn't he? Yeah, uh, Cozy Powell, uh, I talked to him a few times. Uh, he wasn't riding with the bus, though. I guess he was really into fast cars and stuff. So um, on the shows he could drive to, he just drove in you know, whatever cars he had, but he, he was, he drove real fast and was into that kind of thing, you know, racing and stuff. So, uh, he wasn't on the bus, but, um, yeah, great drummer. He did a solo, had this pinwheel behind him. It was, it was pretty crazy. That guy was, uh, 
really upper echelon drummer. Yeah, yeah. Mark, do you have a favorite country that you like to play in that over the years you've fallen in love with? Well, you know, I mean, as far as the fans go, I, I really couldn't pick one, but I, I really enjoy Switzerland only because uh, I know a promoter there and I've actually went there just for a vacation and his, you know, his parents has, have a, uh, a cottage in the Swiss Alps. And so, you know, it's real, it's a great place to visit. And we played a few uh, festivals there and stuff. So that, that's a pretty sweet uh, country. Mm. Were you someone over the years now when you were on tour, uh, you wanted to get out and see the sights, or were you the guy that just wanted to stay in the hotel? Well, it, it depended on the schedule. If we were playing three and then one off and then two and one off in in the States, I kind of, I used to go play pool on the days off a lot because I, I played just under professional speed. And uh, so I used to do that on my days off in the States. But yeah, we used to walk around and try to see things. You know, I remember being in Norway and we would go, you know, see all the, see some sites and stuff. That was on the Alice Cooper tour. I believe we played like 40 countries on that tour. Wow. Um, so yeah, it, it was pretty extensive. We played all over Canada. It was, I, I believe it was about four months. Okay. But, um, so yeah, sometimes we'll get out. But we used to, I used to drink a lot of beer back then. Yeah. And, you know, so a lot of times I was recovering on the days <laughs> off, getting, getting my, you know, getting ready to, to go party some more or whatever. <laughs> you know, like I said, we were really young and, uh, you know, just having a, having a lot of fun. Yeah. Mark, tell me about your first time going to Japan, your memories of that. The first time we went there, I was kind of in shock when we got off the plane. There was about 2,000 kids screaming in the airport. And I'm thinking, what's going on here? I mean, we aren't, it's not like we're as big as Van Halen or something. I'm, I'm not Mike Tyson. You know what I mean? What's going on here, man? You know, I, I wanted to look behind me and see who they're, you know, cheering for. But uh, it was really exciting to, the way the fans are and, um, you know, they they kind of when you go outside of the hotel, they they give you gifts and they want your autograph and you know they make things for you. So um, it, it was really I really enjoyed it. You know, as far as the fans and and just uh, seeing Tokyo and you know and touring in the and going in the bullet train and, and, you know, to Kawasaki and all the different places and seeing the cultures from the train, you know, you could see, you know, people pushing little wheelbarrows, these little tiki huts and just the way they live and stuff is, you know, really interesting, the culture over there. Yeah. Tell me about some of the gifts that you receive from Japanese fans. I had Don Dockin on about two years ago. Yeah. And one of the gifts he told me that someone gave him was a Rolex watch. But I, I know uh, that I know that they make gifts as well. Like what are the extravagant yeah. gifts that you were given over the years? Um you know, it was it was mostly personal uh band related items, nothing like a Rolex watch or whatever, uh like like big backdrops that were hand sewn. We used to fly them all over our rehearsal. We had a really big rehearsal place and we put them all up on the walls. There was about probably 30 different, you know, and they really take time. I, I mean, the, you know, the art of it is, is pretty amazing. And, you know, the cartoon characters on, on these little, you know, it, it was like kind of like flags. They would, hold up during the show and then they would give them to us. They'd throw them on stage or give them to somebody that worked for us or something. You know, they made dolls. They did give us gifts, jewelry and stuff like that. Necklaces, you know, bracelets, stuff like, you know what I mean? But, but I don't think we've ever, to my knowledge, anybody ever received, something that was super expensive like a Rolex um, 
but but a lot of nice nice gifts, you know. Mm. Are are you someone over the years that's that's collected a lot of great white memorabilia? Well, my memorabilia I used to give to my mother, kind of to hold because I knew I would never be able to do it. And when she passed away, I got her this huge trunk. And it was just full of great white stuff. And uh, so I got all the tour jackets, the buttons, you know, the pins, the articles and stuff. Because I used to give her all the magazines, guitar magazines and, you know, all the magazines that we were in and stuff. So that that's so I do have a lot of memorabilia only because of my mother. <laughs> uh, there's no way I would have been able to you know, keep a hold of all that. Mm. What about all the gold and platinum records? Do you, do you still have those? Yeah. They were in storage for about 10 years. And then when we moved, you know, we moved to another house, a bigger house, um, because uh, my daughter was living with us and she had a baby. And and our, our house, it kind of grew smaller when that happened. So we got, we, so when we moved, um, I got all the platinum records and stuff out of storage and I have a music room at home where I kind of do my writing and, you know, we do office work there and stuff. So I, I hung them up after all these years. Nice. There's a lot of, co- a lot of cobwebs. Nice. <laughs> nice. Uh, yeah. So how many guitars do you have in your house, Mark? Um, most of them are in storage in the house. I probably have about maybe six guitars or so, uh, about three or four acoustics. But um, mo- most of the guitars are are like in storage and stuff. And, you know, I'm saving um, some of the guitars for my kids. And, you know, my oldest son still plays guitar. Nice. And uh, so, I, you know, like my 74 Telecaster, I'm going to give to him. You know, when I'm long gone. Mm. Is, is, is that the old? <laughs> Hopefully, it'll be a while. Yeah, is that the oldest guitar you have? Uh, no, I I have a two seventy one uh, Firebirds. So um, I don't believe I have anything older than that. Okay. Now you would have yeah. gone on tour with a lot of musicians over the years, like club, arena, festival, all of that. And there would have been a lot of other bands on the bill as well. And some of them would have probably had like these iconic guitars with them. Are you someone who'd seek those guys out to try and look at the guitars that they have and maybe get a chance to play them? Um, I don't know that I've played them. I've never brought out any of my, you know, like prize type guitars that that are valuable to me, maybe have a memory or, you know, um, I, I never risked, uh, bringing out my fender fenders or anything like that. Like, unless it was one that like I got from the company or something, but, um, because, uh, I, as far as playing someone's guitar, you know, um, not really iconic guitars, but I have played like Vivian Campbell. We used to jam together and I would say, let me check your guitar out. And he would play my guitar and we, you know, uh-huh. we used to mess around like that, but that he just had Kramer's, which are, you know, newly made. So as far as relics, I remember there was a band that opened for us called Brittany Fox. And that singer played guitar and he had a prize Les Paul. I mean, this thing was golden. I think it was probably early 70s, maybe. And I didn't play it, but it was on one of those regular stands, you know, like um, just your standard stand that you'd see in a music store. Uh-huh. And it fell. Somebody bumped into it uh-huh. and it fell off the stage and the headstock snapped. Oh, shit. I swear to you, the guy cried. I saw tears. He he was devastated. And that's one of the reasons that I don't bring, you know, I'd rather have guitars out that I that can be replaced. You know what I mean? Yeah. Yeah. Now you said there that you're, you're a big pool fan. Um, what about when it comes to professional pool players? Would you try, have, yeah. you, have you met them and tried to maybe 
hold their pool cues or, or is that off limits? Oh yeah. Yeah, definitely. Um, well, I played in the world championships a couple of years ago in New York and there was 27 countries, uh, represented, you know, and so I played the best players in the world. Most of them are endorsed by big, um, Q companies like Predator and and whatnot. So most of them have new cues. I, I have really good cues myself that were made. So I've never gone up to a pro and go, hey, can I use your cue or whatever? Mm. Apart from John Schmidt, my my good friend who just broke the world record of longest run. Uh, he beat Moscone's uh, record from 1954, which has been five. 526 consecutive balls. So it's, it was a 65 year old record. And my buddy spent a couple months trying to break it and he ran 626. Wow. So, uh, yeah. So he, he comes over a lot and I, I've tried his cues, but they're, they're called, uh, non, non deflection, uh, shafts that he uses. And I use just a regular shaft. So it's so hard for me to switch from one one cue to another because it, it's just the deflection is so much different. It would take me like a year to figure it out. So oh. I just stick with the cue I have, you know, Yeah, because I'm so used to it. Yeah. Now, Mark, I come from a country that's known for, for snooker more than pool. Uh, have, sure. you, have you tried snooker much over the years at all? I haven't, but I've. I've played a lot of players that switch from snooker to pool uh, that used to play snooker. Uh, I'm very familiar with snooker. Uh, I've never really played it. Uh, my buddy John has uh, centuries and stuff, so he's played it, but he, he's a high-end professional. But p- could probably never compete with actual snooker players because they're a different breed. It's uh, It's a completely different game. You know, but I'm a fan of Ronnie O'Sullivan and, and you know, I, I like to watch the world championships and, you know, it, it's a fascinating game, uh, Snooker. Yeah. But yeah. I, don't, I don't play it myself. Yeah, yeah. I, I want to swing it back to Great White, Mark. Um, yeah. You, you've had a long relationship now with Audie, Michael, and yourself. What, what, in your opinion, is the reason you've been able to work together more or less consistently for over 30 years? Um, I, I just think, I mean, we all have different personalities, but, um, somehow we just gel together. You know, we complement each other in that, in that way. So, and we're able to work together, you know, um, because we know what the end goal is. So our, our egos never get in the way of the song, which I think that's really the bond that we have is that, you know, <laughs> I mean, every male has some kind of ego. If you don't believe in yourself a little bit, you know, you got problems. So, mm. of course, you know, of course that you deal with egos a little bit, but we want the end result to for the song. And, and that's, I think that's what kept, has kept us together because we all have the same goal, mm. you know, to make, to make the song the best it can be at the end of the day. So, we do whatever it takes for that to happen. And, and the, you know, Adi and Michael are just great guys. They're, they're fun to be around, you know? So I, I think that lends to our longevity together. Mm. What do you think Adi and Michael are better at, a lot better at than you? Well, as far as Michael goes, he has way more patience than I do. <laughs> you know, uh, um, sometimes, I mean, I, I can only give you this example. Michael, no matter, you know, if it's a tragedy, he he can sit there and evaluate it and all that, you know. Like when I'm in the studio and something isn't working, like say I don't agree with a vocal line, I, I think there's another melody that needs to happen, I will, like, go get a gun, hunt it down, and shoot it. You know what I mean? <laughs> it's like, I won't let it happen. It, so I get kind of wound up, and you know, when it's about the song. And, and Michael can lay back and be more diplomatic. So 
he has that over me. You know, his patience it just blows my patience away. Okay. So I'm I am work in progress in that <laughs> in that realm of things. Um, um Adi, what does he do better than me? Uh play drums. <laughs> <laughs> um uh uh, I don't know. He cooks better than me. I know that. <laughs> <laughs> he had a little cooking, a cooking show. It was pretty amazing. Yeah, well, uh, not a not a show, but he he just you know he, he rolled cameras while he made some. Hey, having a good cook on the road is important. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> uh, is that the reason Michael ended up producing more records than you did because of his personality? Um, I was kind of. Uh, you know, I, I was just kind of sitting back, not, I'm, I'm a different person today than I was back then. Yeah. Um, I, I had this thing in me and, and I, I don't understand where it comes from, but it was kind of an embedded fear. And, and I don't know where that came from. I don't really have it today because I've really worked on all that, but, uh, uh, you know, I, Alcohol or beer, if you will, I was kind of a beer drinker, uh, gave me, that's where I found my confidence where I could, you know, say what was on my mind. But like I co-produced Once Bitten, which was uh, one of our biggest first albums, and then was kind of pushed out of the the albums that followed that, like Uh Twice Shy. Yeah. I still made my comments when something didn't work. The difference today is I worked on all those fears and now, I mean, I feel like I'm good from the production end, but I do like, here's me. I go in and my mindset is I'm a guitar player. I'm involved in the songwriting. I know how I think the song should be. And then, um, if something isn't working, I interject why I think it's not working, and you know, and we go from there. But you know, like we we did our last album with Michael Wagner. Now he's a taskmaster. He has you know a hundred million albums under his belt. So so obviously he knows about production. So I'm not going to sit there and tell him what to do. You know, I mean, if, if he mixes a song and and I say, I, I think the guitar could come up right here. Or do you think those toms sound big enough, you know, in that one part? I might make a comment like that, but I, I just let him do his work. Mm. Mark, when you when you became sober in the beginning and you yeah. started writing music, did you doubt yourself that you could write music sober, that you needed to have a drink to do it? Um. Well, in the beginning, I really didn't write. Um, it, it was hard enough for me just to play. I remember right when I got out of rehab, I had to go play on stage with Vivian Campbell at this at our record release party. And I was like, I felt like I just scared to death to even be around anybody. I, I didn't even want to be there. And uh, so it, it, it was a gradual kind of learning process to to feel comfortable in my own skin uh sober so um i kind of went on for years uh kind of off and on drinking you know until 2008 when i got sober for real Mm. that's when i started i started working on myself and not just removing alcohol and and that's when I worked on my fears. I did all this stuff. And today, um, you know, because the difference between my sobriety now and, say, in the 90s when I was trying to get sober, and I was going long stints of removing alcohol, but but I did no work on myself at all, you know, my imperfections, my character defects or whatever. So in 2008, I said, you know, this time I want to do it for real, start listening, taking direction, do, you know, working on myself. And and that's the difference. Mm. What sort of drunk were you? Were you the guy that wanted to go in the room on his own and drink or were, were you the life and soul no. of the party? 
though I was the life of the party, you know, it was my vehicle to be the funniest man on earth, <laughs> you know, uh, definitely not a violent alcoholic, uh, just, uh, you know, fun loving, but, um, you know, that's when the party was going, but, but waking up in the morning was a whole different deal. <laughs> it, it, got, it got pretty bad. I mean, my hangovers were way beyond, oh, my head hurts or whatever. I was shaky. You know, I felt guilty and shame. And, you know, I mean, it was just horrific, the, the life. And the way I explain it to people, it was like I was chasing normal. You know what I mean? Huh. It's like I, I, I literally just didn't want to feel bad. So I would roll out of bed and drink two, three or four beers. And everything went away, and I was good again. You know what I mean? Yeah. So it, it it was literally like I'm running a marathon, trying to find normal all the time. Yeah. And it's just a lot. It's a lot of work. You know what I mean? When all you have to do is not drink, and you're normal all the time, and it's just it's so much easier. Yeah. Because being a using alcoholic or a using drug addict, you need your drug, you need your alcohol. So. Sometimes it's not available and it's just a nightmare or, you know what I mean? So you're, you're always, it wasn't like I was, I needed to be really screwed up or, or super drunk, you know, by noon. It, it just, I didn't want to feel like shit, you know? Yeah. <laughs> and so that, that was the main thing. And, and, you know, it is a lot of work and it's kind of a dark life when you're not just drinking for enjoyment or socializing, you know, where it becomes a rut and you need it to feel better. You know what I mean? It's a different deal. So I've never, when I reach out to people suffering, that's who I'm reaching to. I'm not reaching to the guy that can drink, you know, four beers with his friends and watch the football game. <laughs> you know what I mean? It's like, I'm not trying to help that guy. <laughs> yeah. Uh, why do you think you didn't get addicted to harder drugs? That why did it? Why do you think you ended up that beer was your crutch? You know what? Uh, it, it's really interesting that you asked that because the cocaine or whatever was a popular social thing in the eighties, and I did kind of my share. It's just that for some reason I never, you know, got into where I went out and bought eight balls and you know uh, i i never got to where i did i never feel but felt like i needed it but I, if it was a party and somebody threw a line out or something i wouldn't like turn it down but i just never you know got into needing it or having to purchase it or whatever um as far as the harder drugs like like heroin and stuff i've never even seen it i've never um I've had friends that got in trouble with it, but uh, it's funny because my dad's a jazz musician. And when I went into high school, he's warning me about drugs that were back in his jazz days. <laughs> you know, <laughs> he's going, watch out for that heroin. He goes, the first time it's for free and then you're hooked. And to this day, I've never ran into it. So he's warning me about drugs that, really weren't popular when I did go into high school. Yeah. I, I know there was there was kind of a it kind of came into the uh to the element in you know in California or whatever and around the country it really where it was popular with younger people like they were starting to try it and and whatever at, at some period I I forget when that was but um yeah so I'd never been into that and uh as far as hard alcohol goes, I drank it every once in a while, but I didn't like roll out of bed and start drinking whiskey. You know what I mean? Mm. So beer, even though I didn't love the taste, was just kind of my go-to alcohol thing. <laughs> you know, I don't know why. Yeah, you know? yeah. Um, addiction for you now? Do you think it's it's nature or nurture that? you were born with an addictive personality or do you think it's the environment you were in? Like in the eighties, people would probably expect you to behave a certain way that it was sex, drugs and rock and roll. Yeah. 
Um, I think I was kind of born with the seed. Um, my dad was an alcoholic, a functioning alcoholic. Like he never missed a day of work in his life, but, uh, he drank vodka and he'd hide these little bottles around. And, you know, so, uh, um, I'm compulsive, you know, that's part of my problem. When I get into something, I have to do it to the absolute maximum. You know what I mean? Uh-huh. So unfortunately I found alcohol and, you know, kind of took that to its limits, but it had nothing to do with the scene or the, the, you know, band culture or music scene or whatever. I, I was just kind of an alcoholic anyways. You could strip away the music and I'm, I'd still be that, you know, guy that needed a, you know, a beer or whatever. So it really wasn't had anything to do with the music apart from as a young man, as like 19 years old, I, I would drink three or four beers before the gig and, and it kind of gave me, you know, took away the little uh, stage fright and, you know, gave me con- confidence to go out there and be cocky and, you know, kind of play my guitar right in your face type thing. So when when it came time and, and we started moving up a couple notches and all of a sudden arenas were facing us, the beer came in handy. You know what I mean? Yeah. Because uh, it, that was a, a big jump for us going from clubs to arenas. And there was a little bit of fear and, you know, it kind of helped with that. And so... I don't know. I, I think I was born with it. Um, I actually drank the first time when I was eight years old. My parents used to play cards and you can open our refrigerator door and it blocks the doorway where they're playing cards. And w- the first time I ever drank, I was drinking out of this jug of wine <laughs> at eight years old. Wow. Eight years old. And I actually got drunk. Focus! And um, I, I don't think that was any kind of a, oh, I'm hooked, you know, <laughs> you know, but it, it, it's just amazing that I drank that young. So I, I don't know. It, it didn't have, you know, so you can definitely say that didn't have anything to do with the 80s or whatever. Huh. So I think, you know, people, some people uh, can get addicted, like accidentally, you know, or. Like they might have some physical ailment and they start taking pain medication and become addicted to it or, you know, so it can't happen that way. But I do think I was born with the the seed, if you will. Yeah. Mark, when was the first time you tried rehab? Uh, In 91. I kind of felt we were doing a video for a song called Call It Rock and Roll. And I... I could feel the band, uh, you know, were upset with me. I could just tell by the way they were acting and I could almost tell. And then I heard we're going to have a meeting and I kind of knew what that meeting was going to be about, uh, maybe about my drinking. And so when we had the meeting, the first thing I started out and I said, Hey guys, you know, I, I want to stop drinking. It's just, I've never done it before. I don't know how to go about it, you know? So I think that that's what the meeting's about. Right. <laughs> and, uh, and sure enough, it was. So uh, I went out to a rehab in Arizona in 91. I was listening to everyone. I was attentive, but I didn't totally believe everyone what they were telling me. Like it's a, it's a disease. I, I just didn't believe that. And then they said, you could be sober for like five years. And if you drink again, it's even worse than when you quit because it's progressive. I didn't believe that, but I listened. And uh, so all the things they told me turned out to be true because I tested it. <laughs> so, uh, you know, so no they didn't have any reason to lie to me. Everybody was telling me from experience and I just had to kind of learn the hard way. And, uh, 
there was actually some pretty famous people in that rehab that I won't mention, but it, it was, uh, you know, my first experience in rehab. And then, then I tried another rehab, I believe it was 2005, got out, was sober for 10 months. My whole thing, it wasn't like, I, I was just jealous of people that could drink normal. So I kept trying to drink like normal people and kept failing. But that was my reason. It wasn't because, oh, I got this urge to drink and I need to drink. I knew I, I just wanted to, okay, this time I'm just going to have a couple beers and I'm not going to drink anymore. <laughs> you know, And I kept trying that. It just, after a couple of weeks, I would fail, you know? So I was just jealous of people that can, you know, just be a social drinker. Oh. And that's my reason I kept going back. But finally, I surrendered in 2008. And here we are today, 12 plus years later, and I'm still sober. <laughs> this time around, I, I, I kind of threw my arms up. You know, I mean, I basically threw my arms up and said, help. You know, yeah. I, I was full surrender mode to the addiction and and the whole I, I know I can't drink like a normal person I give up so that was my first step in onto a sober path yeah Mark there's a fine line between having a few beers and going on stage and being okay playing wise um, do you look back on videos now of, of that time when you were drinking and you, you notice that oh god my playing here wasn't great yeah it, mostly the way I looked than the playing there were times I could have played better. You know, we can always play better. But um, it was mostly the way I looked that makes me cringe more than the playing. Because I never got just blasted before I played. <laughs> you know, hmm. I, 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 like in other words, I didn't get falling down drunk before I, I played my guitar. I, I just got to where I was just cruising, you know, and can go out there. But, I will say this, there were nights where I didn't feel that good. You know, your body starts to run down when you're partying too much. So if your body's not 100%, you're not going to play 100%. So I, I'm sure there, were, there weren't the greatest nights. And you got to realize, we're talking about back before they had cell phones. Had there been cell phones back there, I'm sure there would be some videos I would cringe over. You know, hmm. but most of the most of the YouTube stuff that I have seen, at least, um, it isn't isn't awful. But if if they were out there with cell phones every single night, I'm sure there would be you know shows that I'm less than thrilled with. Hmm. Have you done tours? And you, if someone asked you to memories of them, you just can't remember them at all. Not really. I remember all the tours. Maybe not the day-to-day. -day, yeah. Uh, because when you're playing arenas like every day, you, you, you're basically, okay, you play Detroit. After the show, you know, you party down, then you travel 300 miles to Ohio or whatever. And when you, you know, you might go to the hotel, and then when you get on the bus, you're at another arena. So it, it just becomes like... We used to have duct tape to write the cities down, so we, <laughs> so the singer didn't blow it, you know. <laughs> One time, this is serious. When we started doing that, we were in Belfast, and at the end of the show, Jack said he started to say Dublin goodnight, and he really he caught himself, but everybody booed, and and so um, after that, we said. You know, from now on, we're putting duct tape, and we're going to put where the hell you're at. <laughs> you know, that way you'll never, you'll never do that again. Yeah. Have you ever been on stage, Mark, and uh, you started the wrong song? No, but um, th this happened to me once. We used to open with a song that had a drop D tuning. The guy that tunes my guitar is total pro, never made a mistake this radical before he had the D the lowest string tuned a half a step higher than it should be. Like he misread the tuner somehow. So I hit this big chord that was so out of tune. It was insane. 
and it was our opening so it was the <laughs> opening to the show. Man, I just wanted to crawl under a rock and go away or something. <laughs> I've never been so embarrassed in my life. It was terrible. Because you hit a chord and you're all cocky like, you know, the god of rock and it's out of tune like that. It's it's devastating. Yeah, yeah. Were you one of these bands back then that you were a hundred percent live? Like, or did you have some keyboards maybe that you had taped? Because, you know, back then you'd hear stories about certain bands that the albums were so well produced in the studio that they needed some help to be able to produce it live. Yeah. Um, w- no, we we just never used, like, in the beginning, we were just bass, guitar, and drums. And we had this, like, keyboard kind of low-end thing that we used. but we had the bass player uh, do it with a foot pedal. So we didn't have tapes. We all sang and everything, but that's when we were a trio with lead singer and we'd never had to put keyboards on tape because we have a keyboard player. Um, yeah. Uh, we've never used the tapes. I know some bands, you know, they, they've orchestrated their stuff so radical. They can't, actually reproduce it live so they have to use uh tapes with parts on it Uh so um but we've never had to do that we've never put vocals on tape or anything like that yeah yeah everybody sings within their range so (laughs) you know i'm not trying to sing like freddie mercury you know what i mean i i I sing more in like the hendrix steve ray vaughn range so my harmony parts are like in that in my range so i don't have to you know we don't need a tape to for me to sing you know mm. so uh you know we practice our vocals a lot backstage and and uh just go out there and uh do the human thing you know what i mean yeah so when you hear us live it's really us yeah like it or not nice nice uh, i want to ask you a couple of questions on a couple of the albums that you did over the years mark um, and you you said there that you mentioned Hooked was the time period where you went into rehab. The following year, you did Psycho City, and you did it pretty quickly after Hooked. Uh, was that an album you did sober? Yes, it was. I did, uh, and I I liked it better than Hooked, it just as far as everything. I liked the production better. I liked, uh, you know, my playing better, um, the sounds we got better. So I was feeling pretty comfortable by then. Yeah, we recorded that album in Santa Inez, California, which was a 300-acre ranch next to Michael Jackson's Wonderland. And it was next to the McDonald's ranch, you know, the McDonald's people. And uh, the vibe was really, really fun. And uh, we recorded in a house. Uh, all wood and the room sounded killer so that that was a lot of fun to make that record yeah were any of those songs left over from hooked or were they all new because you didn't really have much time to write it if they were all new they were they were all new they were all new wow yeah because um if, if anything's left over it's pretty much scrapped that means it wasn't good enough to make the record because that's the way we've always done records We've never, you know, we never preconceive what we're going to do, you know, what kind of record we're going to make. We just write 20, 25 songs and the best 10 or 12 make it. You know what I mean? And the other stuff, it, it just didn't make it. We don't put those songs on some other record because they weren't good enough to make that one. <laughs> it wouldn't make sense. You know what I mean? So we always write new stuff every every album Mm. um i think there might have been there might have been times i can't really give you an example of it but i believe if anything maybe we would take a small riff from an idea that didn't make it and turn it into something else yeah that's a possibility yeah but but to take a a full idea that, that wasn't good enough to make a record and put it on another one I, I doubt we would ever do that. Mm. Mark, were you okay in the beginning of your career putting cover songs on every album? Cover songs? Yeah, all the early albums always seem to have 
a cover. Well, yeah, our manager used to come with those ideas, like to do Substitute. That's not even a song I really knew anything about. I think he liked the lyrics in that song or something. So uh, he suggested we do that. So we said, fine. Um, but it, it's never been something we did from a shortage of ideas or, you know, there always seems to be some kind of reason we do a cover. I, I don't really know what that is. Um, apart from the manager used to bring us ideas, you know, to play this cover or that cover. Mm. The, the once bitten twice shy cover completely happened by accident in the sense that, um, Izzy Stradlin from Guns N' Roses, who our manager managed, he managed Guns N' Roses as well, came to Alan with that Once Fit and Twice Shy song. I've never heard the song in my life. And since we had an album called Once Bitten and then the follow-up was Twice Shy, he goes, you guys should cover this song. Yeah. And Niven, Niven loved the lyrics. That, that And he presented it to us. And we said, yeah, it's a cool tune. We, we'll we can do that, you know. So a lot of times it, it, it stemmed from our manager as opposed to us initiating it. You know? Yeah. What are your memories, Mark, of uh, Can't Get There From Here, the album for the John Kalodner that you did in 99? Like, did, did you know John Kalodner before then? Yeah. I, I met him a few times. Uh, he was out on the White Tank tour. He was a big fan of Coverdale and... Uh, like to be around him and stuff. And, uh, yeah, so I knew him pretty good. Uh, talked to him a few times. Uh, that was a lot of fun to make that record with, uh, Jack blades yeah. uh, producing. We, we did it on his ranch. Um, we, we lived there for a month while we did it. It was just a, a great vibe. You know, he had a 50 acre ranch and a really killer studio. I got some really good guitar sounds in that studio. We did the the basic tracks in L.A. And Audie was uh, sick at the time, um, going through some personal issues and stuff. So Myron Grombacher played drums. So we did the the drums and bass um, in in uh, the, our our own studio in L.A. And then we we did all the overdubs at Jack Blades. Mm. I remember that label when it was launched. Uh, there was high hopes for it to bring back a lot of the '80s bands, and I, I believe it was just your record and the Rat record that came out before yeah. the label folded. Like that, that must have sucked for you guys that that happened. It was horrible. Um, you know, they did. He didn't have. He had the right idea. And John Klogner is like w really smart guy, but the label wasn't supporting his ideas. And so he didn't have the marketing dollars to, for the project. And he had us rat and Whitesnake on the label and he didn't have the money to, you know, to push it forward. So we were doing meet and greets and record stuff, you know, autograph sessions and stuff with rat and you know i remember the singer he he said hey let's write each other's names down just for a joke <laughs> you know, that's how that's how stupid it was it was like you know you don't i mean you know because we both were on the same label and our album was released at a similar time so we're doing meet and greets with them you know they thought it was goofy and we thought it was goofy. You know, it's something we've never done before. We're friends with them, but it's still. Uh, and so it wasn't his fault. I, he just didn't have the support of the label. That That's why I think it, because that was a really good record. And I think had it not been for the new wave of music coming through and, and, well, it was kind of the end of that really. So it was 1999. So I, that excuse cannot be made, but it, it just didn't have the proper push because it had, uh, I think the material was pretty much there on that album. Hmm. You know, 
there's not too much you could half that record i believe you could have grabbed any one of five songs and pushed it to the radio yeah yeah definitely um what what in your opinion for you was the easiest great white record to do and what was the hardest the hardest the easiest was probably i would say the last record we did in 2017 was probably the easiest record because the atmosphere was completely new we hadn't worked with michael wagner since our ep and our first album so the excitement level was vibrating at a really high frequency Uh and it was so much fun like i enjoyed like every note of, of the entire record by everyone just personalities hanging out with the guys uh the whole thing, it, it just made it like the easiest, you know, probably thing I've ever done. Uh, my concentration level was, was, you know, high, but at the same time, I was relaxed, you know. I, you know. Michael Wagner really makes you feel comfortable when you record, and I'm sure that's from just doing it for so many years, because he's such a funny man, for one thing, and he knows how to get the maximum performance out of somebody and, you know, give them confidence. When we first met him though, he didn't know English. So (laughs) very few words. And, you know, he was learning English quickly, but he didn't know the soft language, the euphemisms. You know what I mean? Yeah. Yeah. So the, the funniest thing I remember him saying, you know, like, if a singer's singing and they kind of don't get it right, maybe hit a couple bad notes, a producer will say, hey, buddy, good job, but I think you can get one better. You know, they have all these these ways of saying it that keeps the confidence in the performer and, you, you know. Uh-huh. And, but Michael Wagner, because of his limited English, didn't know how to do that. So he would just say, don't sing flat. <laughs> you know what I mean? <laughs> if the singer wasn't getting it, and you know, or the guitar player, you know, doesn't have a good performance, don't play bad. <laughs> you know, <laughs> so it was hysterical. He would answer the telephone and just say, "Telephone." <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So it, it, you know, so it was so funny. You know, so yeah, that was the easiest, uh, probably the most difficult was once bitten because of the pressure. You know, it was our second opportunity on a major label, and we knew if we blew it this time, it was career over. So that put a lot of pressure on us, but um, we fought through all that and and played well So mm. and had success. So it was, uh, the the hard work was worth it. And But I remember that being difficult, you know, yeah. just uh, from the pressure mostly, our playing wise and everything was fine, but we were we were feeling the heat, you know, to be because I I believe you can get a separate second opportunity, but number three probably isn't gonna. Mm. Mark, were you were you were you aware back then that the European release for One Spitting had only five of the songs from that album on it and three from Shot in the Dark? Because I have it on vinyl, and I remember at the time being pissed off that I couldn't get the full version of the record. I knew nothing about that. So it didn't have the full version of Once Bitten? No, it had five tracks from Once Bitten, and then it has Give Me Some Love and Face Today, and What Do You Do, I think, on it. Are you kidding? Yeah, I I have it at home. That is amazing. I have it at home. I never heard anything about that. So Once Bitten was never released in its entirety in Europe? No. At the time, no. That is weird. Mm. Wow, thanks for telling me that. I've never heard about that before. <laughs> yeah, That's, yeah. That, I don't know why they would do that, because Capitol Records put their name on our self-produced Shot in the Dark album. So they they actually, you know, kind of released it, but we'd already been touring for a year on it, so they, they told us after four shows, I remember we played with Dawkins, four shows after Capital signed the band and they said, get back in the studio and make a record. Yeah. So 
I don't know why they would grab songs off that album and put them on. Uh, yeah, that's that's very strange because uh, Once Bitten was a pretty strong record. I don't know why you'd want to take songs off it. Yeah, you, you, uh, had, you had you had MTV were playing over in Ireland at the time and in, in England. They were playing Save Your Love, and it wasn't even on the record. Oh man! Yeah, God, well, I don't know <laughs> whose idea that was. I don't. Because, I don't know. Well, Save Your Love never really went real high in the charts like it wasn't a top 10 single but it was with the fans when we played it live i think they call that a turntable hit you know where the fans discover a song and they love it uh-huh. but it's not necessarily a big radio hit for some reason we played that song live we had the lighters going and you know so it was a big live song and it did we did have the mtv uh video yeah but yeah wow that's weird man <laughs> I, i'm learning something here yeah you know, i never heard that before wow yeah. that's i know a lot of times in japan and europe they put a bonus track but i've never heard of them stripping half the record i can't wait i, I can't wait to tell lardy and, and uh, the band about that that's pretty flipping crazy yeah yeah i wonder if michael knows about that i'm gonna ask him so, so Mark, what what's the underrated what's the underrated Great White album, in your opinion? Um, I think the most underrated is probably can't get there from here, but uh, I think Let It Rock. I I you know Let It Rock was a great record, um, but again, we didn't have a lot of label support, so it's hard to say something's underrated that not that many people know about. You know. Mm. It, it really, a lot of times it just has to do with the big machine, you know, malfunctioned. <laughs> yeah. You know, and, it, you know, because if you can't get the music to the people, how can you say something's underrated? It just hasn't been rated. Yeah. You know what I mean? I hear you. If a million people heard, or say five million people heard Can't Get There From Here, they might all say it's a, it's a really good record or, you know. 70% of them, maybe. Hmm. But I don't think that many people heard or know about the record. Yeah, yeah. So bringing it up to date now, uh, you got hopefully live shows coming up. And, of course, the news the other day was Texas and Mississippi are are reopening 100%. Yeah. So you must be really looking forward to that because you haven't really played a live show since when? Last Th- July, wasn't it? Yeah, we're super excited uh, for Texas and these you know, states that are opening and stuff. I think people have uh, educated themselves well enough to to go out there and be in the world safely, you know. Uh-huh. Um, everybody is so sick of, you know, just being home all the time. I mean, I, I, it's, I think it's a little ridiculous. I, I think uh, people uh, have enough knowledge on, you know. And I think if you are that worried, and just want to, then you should just stay home. Just do that. Yeah. But, you know, I think people are ready to get out and rock and have, enjoy themselves at some point. I mean, you know, let's do this. Mm. So I'm happy to hear about Texas and, the, you know, states are starting to open up and let people get back to the normal lives. Yeah. How much rehearsal do you think you're going to have to do, Mark, before you go back out? Because it's been so long since you played. Yeah. We always go in for a few days, you know, get the set together, figure out what we're going to do. Right now, I mean, the past past year or so, we're just writing songs. I mean, <laughs> I mean, you know, I've I've written so much, man. I have some killer stuff. I cannot wait to record. I mean, I'm so we're so much more re- prepared than we were on the last record. The last record, we went to Michael Wagner's. And literally did not have lyrics to most of the stuff. I mean, that's how crazy it was. Mm. We had just bits and pieces of lyrics, but n- nothing was finished. This time we're, we're going to be totally like everything finished. So that's exciting. But yeah, we always get into a room and, and jam, you know, and uh, get ready to go out and, you know, figure out the set and stuff like that. So. Mm, yeah, probably a couple, three days usually to get it done. You know, just 
just have a nice solid like six hour rehearsal with a a lunch break. <laughs> <laughs> a lot of it at this stage, Mark, must be muscle memory for you. It comes back more or less straight away. Oh yeah, I mean, as far as playing the big songs and stuff, it's just basically going through it. Yeah. Um, but you know, figuring out the set and stuff, and you know, we don't actually like choreograph anything. We're not really that type of band. That's gonna three guys get together on this one part, move the guitars together. <laughs> you know, yeah. I mean, we we don't we don't do stuff like that, but. Uh, just it gets our energy up. It's fun, and um, you know, to get ready and go play. Mm. So, yeah, um, we'll definitely be uh, rehearsing. And and is Mitch Malloy adding a lot of ideas to the new record? Oh yeah, definitely, man. I'm sending him music, and he's coming back with a song, and that's with no melody ideas. I'm not humming. I'm not singing. You know, I I mean, I am when I write. I kind of caterwauling. You know, I I, I kind of sing to make sure it works and make sure there's tons of melodies available in that. But when I send it to him, I don't send it with that. He prefers that. Oh, nice. Because, um, he, he he's a songwriter, so he he has really good song sense. Uh, he's written, you know, he has like ten solo albums, so he knows what he's doing. So he's really good. I've sent him music, and he sends me back a studio recording. He, he has a full studio. He's kind of a producer. So he sends me back with the song finished, lyrics, everything, melodies. Nice. So it, it makes it, it... I've never done that before with any singer where they just can write a song with music. For some reason, I think I have to show them how it goes. <laughs> you know, <laughs> the only thing he has come and asked me was, can you just call out the arrangement? Because sometimes, you know, like I'll say... Okay, first verse, and then I'll say, you know, pre-chorus, and then, you know, he's not sure where I'm going to put the solo, you know. I go, solo, you know, so that's all I I just do that to give him the map of, of the arrangement. But Nice. So, yeah, so there's, pretty good. He's so, Mark, good. there's obviously a lot coming from Great White. You've hopefully a new yeah. album, and you're going to be hopefully yeah, doing shows sure. soon. So... Uh, do you want to give all the, the people the social media sites where people can get in touch with the band? Yeah. Um, uh, you know, the best way to find out what we're up to is uh, go to officialgreatwhite.com. And, you know, the whole band's on Facebook. You know, we got the uh, Great White Band. You know, we have to put Great White Band because, unfortunately, our name is Great White. And, you know, the fish get involved when you want <laughs> great white on Facebook, you know what I mean? Yeah. So, uh, um, so to eliminate the ocean and all that, you, it's great white band. That's our Facebook. You can go on there. Uh, we're all individually, uh, we're, we're on Twitter, you know, so you can get a hold of us anywhere, but the best way to find out when there's a show in your area or whatever is by going to official great white, Com. Okay, perfect. Well, Mark, I'll be in touch with you sometime next month about sending that album out to you to get signed. Yeah. And um, okay. Uh, hopefully, I'll be able to travel somewhere to see you guys live soon. I've never seen you play live, so it, it, you've always been one oh, of the bands man. I wanted to see. Yeah. Oh, that'd be awesome. Yeah, especially if we get out there on the East Coast near Boston, man. You, you got to come down. Yeah, I will. I will. Well, Mark, it's been a pleasure. Thanks for giving me so much of your time. You're very welcome. Thank All right. you. Have a good rest of the day Bye -bye. and take care of yourself. Bye. You too, man. And there you go. Richie's chat with Great White's Mark Kendall. Leave it to Richie for all the prying and probing and digging back in time and getting us all the great stories and also getting Mark to kind of compare and contrast all of his longtime bandmates. And if you feel like having a companion episode to this, you got some free listening time, then I urge you to go out and check out episode 420, where we talk to uh, Tony Montana about a few of the great white albums that he was involved with as well. So, you know, that plus this, get a little great white knowledge, go out and impress your metal friends. There you go. And again, big thanks to Mark Kendall for spending a crap load of time with Richie talking about all this stuff. I mean, there's quite a bit of stuff, too, that even ended up on the editing room floor, plus some off-the-record stuff to boot. So, uh, yeah, all kinds of good stuff there this week with 
Mark Kendall. So that is this week. But what is up for next week, you're probably asking. Well, this week, I actually might have a good idea about what is going to happen for next week. And as of right now, the way it's looking, I think we're going to be having a chat with our good buddy, Bob Nalbandian. I think I mentioned this a few weeks back, the fact that the uh, Inside Metal Godfathers of Bay Area Metal Part 2 is coming out soon. And I will try to get Bob on the show to talk all about what's going on with that documentary, just get some good insight and just find out even what's up with Bob, what's up with the Shockwaves podcast, all that good stuff that uh, that Bob's involved with. So a few days ago, I was able to spend a good chunk of time one evening talking with Bob all about the Bay Area Godfathers Part 2. I've been lucky enough to get a sneak preview of the documentary. And even though I really hate watching you know, a full movie thing on a computer screen, it was well worth it. Great stuff. And I think that uh, every time they're putting out a new Inside Metals part, that uh, they just keep upping their game time after time. So that is what is probably up for next week. But for this week, that's it. There ain't no more. Stick a fork in it. This puppy is well and truly done. So for Richie, myself, and everybody else here at Focus on Metal, have yourselves a great metal week. Be safe. And as always, remember... Focus on Metal! Everything else is insignificant. Still here? It's over. Go home.